1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in, in hopes of being thorough uh, and, and not being redundant or making anybody feel like Calvary Chapel operates like a police state and we're, we're peeking in your windows and trying to catch you doing something that you shouldn't be doing and so that we can, um, you know, kick you out of the church. We don't ever want that impression. And I, I'm quite confident that the kind of the atmosphere of our church doesn't give that vibe, does it? I'm just checking heads. Okay, good. Because <clears throat> we don't want that here. Uh, we want to be a welcoming com- uh, community. Um, but, you know, this God has called us to be holy. You know, be holy for I am holy. Uh, and he wants us to do all that we can to help uh, everyone else in walking in the light as he is in the light. And when people refuse uh, to do that, then scripture puts the responsibility upon us uh, to, to take care of that. So, uh, so I want to look at one more real example in the church where sin had to be dealt with. Uh, last week, we looked at the, in- the incident with Peter uh, dealing with uh, leadership in the church that has uh, strayed or failed morally or theologically. Uh, and this one has to do with moral failure, with, uh, with laity in the church, and um, so let's look at it. I know it's a weird one, but uh, after today, we'll return to Matthew 18, and we'll get into the doctrine of forgiveness. Amen? All right. So Paul's first letter uh, to the Corinthians, or what actually might be the second, as we'll see in the chapter, was a letter written in response to a letter written to him from, uh, apparently, it was Chloe's household, uh, which he names in, in, in chapter 1. I, I don't know if that was safe, uh, but he, he said, it, it has been reported to me from Chloe's, uh, Chloe's household that there are divisions among you. And uh, so Chloe was probably in big trouble after that. Uh, but the letter was filled with all kinds of crazy stuff that was going on in the Corinthian uh, church. And uh, this was the second, uh, chapter 5 here is the second issue that he brings up. There are many, many more problems. Uh, but this one is, is in the context of what we're talking about. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, when Paul received the letter from Chloe, it must have been nothing but shock and horror as he read that letter. And, uh, and that's why 1 Corinthians comes across the way that it does. So uh, why don't we please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading all of chapter 5, and we'll, we'll move through it, I think, uh, fairly quickly. So hold on tight. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and such sexual morality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed is absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the section of moral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. <clears throat> Father, Lord, grateful for your word, grateful that we don't have to guess at what it is that we should do in your church. And um, Lord, sadly, we're, we're still made of some pretty messy stuff. And the church can be a mess. People can be a mess. Lord, thank you for instruction in regard to <clears throat> the best method of restoring people through repentance. And I pray that, um, Lord, you just better instruct us, better equip us uh, for the future, because problems will arise again, because, well, we're in your church. And uh, so teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go and be seated. Fun chapter, huh? Yeah, some of the Bible is just rated R, like Genesis, um, Judges, my goodness. So let's, uh, let's look at this. Paul says, it is actually reported, remember there was a letter sent to him, that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual morality as is not, is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So to him, uh, Chloe had written that uh, we, we got a problem. Uh, there's sexual behavior in our church that. It's not even tolerated among the pagans. They didn't even tolerate this kind of sin. What's happening? A man is having sex with his stepmother. Ew. Not only is it gross and immoral, it's, it's unacceptable even among the immoral. This is, this is completely uncalled for. But it gets worse. <clears throat> and this is probably what is even more astounding to Paul. He says, and you, that is the church, you're puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So many in the fellowship, they're puffed up, they're arrogant, they're they're celebrating the sexual liberties being taken by this person that's in the fellowship. Now that would have been astounding to us 20 years ago to hear about that happening in a church. But sexual sin and the celebration or celebrating with those sinners has become rampant in denominations and so-called churches today, all of which is under the banner of what? Pride, as as it was in Corinth. They're proud of this. Interesting how uh, there's nothing really new under the sun. Proud to be disgusting. Proud to be in rebellion against against God. They They were then, they are now shameless, just flaunting immorality in the church. And so the Corinthians, Paul is saying, instead of being proud, you should have been ashamed of yourselves. You should, have, you should have wept and mourned that this kind of thing was being tolerated in the church of the living God, who is holy, who has called us to purity. 
He says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. So for Paul, uh, the matter has already been settled. He's, he's already passed judgment on the behavior and on the individual, and he's already decided uh, what should be done with this person. There was just there was no deliberation necessary when it came to this. Uh, and, and this, to me, is all of this is astounding. Years ago, I had received uh, a phone call from an elder at a Presbyterian church who was sharing with me how their session, that's the, what they call their, their board of elders, was in a time of discernment. They were taking this time of discernment regarding their denomination allowing practicing homosexuals to be pastors. And my question to the elder was, uh, what is it that you're trying to discern? Discernment is the exercise of wisdom when the scriptures do not speak clearly on a particular matter. But when it comes to sexual morality, God has made it abundantly clear. Uh, so I fail, I told him, to understand what your session is trying to discern. Uh, this is easy. Condemn the denomination and get your sheep as far from it as you can and do it now. Amen? Yeah, it's, we're done. Okay? Uh, just hearing what she had said to me, uh, I was like Paul. I have already judged those who have done this deed. Oh, but Pastor Ben, we can't judge. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Well, be sure that when you quote Jesus, that you quote his intent in the context that he said it, okay? Because in the very next breath, he said, do not cast your pearls to swine. <laughs> now, how am I going to know swine from non-swine unless I make a judgment? You get it? Jesus is telling me to make a judgment about people so that I don't cast my pearls, that is the gospel, to them, okay? I have to judge. How do you select those that you deem worthy or unworthy, qualified or unqualified for anything without passing judgment? Do you let anyone watch your children? Oh, well, how self-righteous and judgmental. I mean, every pedophile deserves another chance to be alone with children to redeem themselves. That's where we're at in a society, by the way. Restorative justice is what that is. A judge not lest you be judged is passing unjust judgment on those who do not deserve it, is what Jesus is saying. It's looking down on others harshly, unfairly. Uh, Christians are called upon to be judicious, to be discerning when it comes to people, but we must do it justly. We must do it righteously, as Paul has done in our text here. He already judged the man who was in sin. But to what end? <clears throat> he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now we're talking judgment, right? So how serious do you think the matter of sexual morality is to God? It's a big deal. He says, in the name of, which means consistent with what the person would do, what is consistent with their character and with their authority, and there's no other authority higher than Christ, especially when it comes you know, to the affairs of his church and her sanctity. 
And so when the church comes together, he's saying, exercise the authority of Christ that has been granted to the church to deliver this person over to Satan. That's some serious judgment. He says, get them out of the fellowship, out from under the protection and the benefits of the the church community, and turn them over to Satan. The idea there is send him outside to be taught a lesson. You don't want to walk with Christ and obey his word? Then you can't be here, okay? If you don't want to play by his rules, you can't play here at all. And the the only other alternative is, is out there in Satan's domain. Give him over. Give him some perspective. You don't like to be under Christ's authority? Then try Satan's. So what's the result? He says, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I I can't say that I'm certain of all that this means, uh, but it doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound good. Uh, Paul had, uh, at another time, he had delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan, so they might not so they would learn not to blaspheme, to blaspheme. See, these guys had said that the resurrection was of, of us, our bodies, was past, and that they were shipwrecking the faith of others. And so Paul delivered them over to Satan. But here, <clears throat> uh, it wasn't so that this man would learn not to blaspheme, but it was for the destruction of his flesh. I'm not totally certain of what Paul means by that. Uh, you know, does it mean that, that by getting him out of the protection of the church, that then Satan would you know, draw him into deeper and darker sexual sin uh, to where you know, his body would then become um, subject to some kind of, maybe an STD uh, in Rome, in Corinth, especially uh, herpes and gonorrhea was rampant. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 that, that for uh, the homosexual, his sin will be, the wrath of God will be revealed in his body. Um, so there's a physical um, thing here, it seems. Whatever it means, there is a, a disciplinary measure here that here that in the end it would be for their benefit. He says for the ultimate salvation of their soul. And as Paul says, the exclusion of the person is also for the benefit of the church. So real quick, on the, this, this part about salvation ultimately at the end, I believe that it's, it's better for some people to die rather than to continue in the kind of evil that they're in. To continue to, you know, shame the name of Christ, to infect other people and and all of that. It's better that they just go on and be with the Lord. What do you guys think? I I think so. It's ultimately for their good, and it's it's for the church's benefit. Paul says, your glorying is not good. That's insane, that they're glorying. That is, they are boasting about this relationship. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, so you guys are boasting something that's not good. You're celebrating something that is dangerous, not just for him, but it's dangerous for you. It's going to lead to your, your harm. And Paul then begins to use this illustration about leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. So of course, we, we add leaven to dough to make it rise, to make it more palatable. But in the process of doing that, the, the, understand the yeast, the, the, the leaven is actually corrupting the dough through fermentation. It's accelerating the process that rots and spoils it. And as Paul says, it doesn't take much leaven to affect the whole lump of dough. Before long, it spreads and it corrupts everything. So 
the illustration, uh, uh, there's, there, there, of course, there's nothing wrong with leaven itself, right? How, who, who likes leavened bread rather than non-leavened bread, okay? Uh, the, the problem here is just simply what leaven has represented throughout the scriptures, okay? Because of how it works or behaves, uh, it was used as an illustration, a, a representation of sin and pride, okay? By its nature, it, it infects, it spoils, it corrupts everything around it like an infectious disease. So Paul is saying that if you celebrate this kind of sin in the church, uh, you won't simply be permitting it, you'll normalize, you'll promote until the point that anything goes and everyone in the church, he says, will be corrupted by it. You see, sin corrupts everyone else because sin actually appeals to everyone else's sin nature. Oh, not, not mine. That's really gross. Oh, no, no. Somebody else's sin doesn't necessarily tempt you to do the same sin, but their sin entices you just to be at liberty to sin. Okay? We're, you guys, we are darker than we think. Okay? We're darker than we think. Yeah. The sin nature is always, always looking for every excuse to get what it wants. There's not a moment in your life, before salvation or after salvation, where sin is not looking for its own way. And it can use the sin of others to justify getting its way. It infects everything around it. So where there is unrepentant sin in the fellowship, action must be taken against the sinner. Okay? The church must do what the ancient Israelites did just before every Passover feast. Paul says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump that is unleavened, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So, you know, just as you know, just before uh, the Passover feast, the Israelites had to get all leaven out of their house. They had to sweep their houses clean of it, dust their houses of it. There couldn't be anything of it. All of the, that representation of sin needed to be put out, to be put away from, from them, okay? No sin, as it were, could be present in Jerusalem, okay? So in the illustration, the leaven, of course, is the sinner, and the lump of dough is the church. The church, whenever it discovers any unrepentant, unrelenting sinner, it has the authority responsibility to remove them for the glory of God, primarily, and then for the sanctity, the purity of, of the church itself. Um, now, it's, I think it's worth saying, the church is to be a community of purity, but not perfection, God does not demand perfection while you're in that, okay? While you're still made of what you're made of, God knows better than to require that of you. He knows that you will fail. But he does call us to purity, amen? He causes us to strive for it. And he causes us to live a life of repentance that is constantly removing ourselves because he knows we will sin and we must quickly repent and turn away. He says the church... He says, you're already unleavened. And the, the reason he says that is because Christ, through his atonement, uh, through his sacrifice, he has washed his people. He's forgiven us of all sin, especially in a legal sense. But practically speaking, we still step in it, right? We still step in it. We're to stay unleavened by a way of avoiding sin, quickly repenting, and removing it when it persists. He says, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity or purity and truth. Now, Paul here is not saying that the Corinthians need to keep the Jewish 
Passover. Some insist that that's what he's saying. That's, that's not what he's saying. The Passover feast, as you know, uh, looked forward. It was a memorial of what God had done in Egypt, but it was looking forward to Christ's coming and being judged in the place of the sinner so that God's wrath would pass over him. Okay? It's kind of like, uh, how many of you guys were forest firefighters? All right. Uh, to prevent the fire from going too far, you do a burn line. And the fire goes to there and stops. Okay, well, Calvary, the mountain on which Christ was sacrificed, is the burn line. The wrath of God has been exhausted there for everyone who has trusted in Christ. His wrath can never, ever burn there again. Amen? It's, it's done. So we are pure in that sense. Okay? We actually keep the feast daily as we walk worthy of the sacrifice. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, in the introduction, I'd mentioned that 1 Corinthians may very well be 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians. Uh, because as, as Paul mentions, uh, there was a letter prior to this one. Okay? Now, that's disputed by some people. I've read their objections. I'm just not convinced by it. Uh, but whatever the case may be, uh, if there was a letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians, uh, we have everything that God wants us to have. Okay? Uh, God didn't see fit to pass the letter to all the churches of all time. Uh, its redundancy was apparently unnecessary. And if you've read the New Testament, you realize that uh, from one letter to one church and another letter, there's a lot of redundancy because the churches were getting uh, all of the same information because same God, same covenant, and the rest. Be that as it may, uh, Paul had written to the Corinthian church, pay attention, not to keep company with, that is literally not to mix or mingle with sexual moral people, but there was a misunderstanding. He says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now, not that they were obeying what he had said anyway, but, or what, even what they thought he meant. He says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So the church had understood initially that Paul meant that believers shouldn't associate with unbelievers who were guilty of such sins. Now, it's true that we shouldn't make them our closest friends, certainly not our girlfriends or boyfriends, our spouses, business partners. But Paul did not mean that we should avoid them. If we did, we'd have to leave the world because, as you've noticed, they're everywhere in the world. Okay? And if we could not make contact with these people, how would we share the gospel with them? How would we show the love of Christ for them, okay? for the sake of their souls, in obedience to the Great Commission? So you'd, you'd actually have to violate the Great Commission to avoid the sexually immoral, and all the rest of the world. What Paul meant in his previous letter was that believers should not keep company with, they should not even eat with anyone who is named a brother or a sister, a believer who is committing those sins. Now, as we talked about the tense uh, before, you have to pay attention. He's not saying that somebody that has committed sexual morality and is repentant. Uh, this is someone like the, the man in our text. He has his father's wife. This is something that he's a sin he's committed to, and he's unrelenting in it. 
Okay? A brother or a sister, a fellow believer, is obligated to walk in repentance and purity as defined in the scriptures. If a believer is sexually immoral, or as Paul says, covetous, an extortioner, idolater, reviler, a drunkard, and that is persistent. If they're unrepentant, then we cut ties with them. Okay? Now, real quick, whenever Paul provides a list of sins, he's not being exhaustive, and nor should he have to be, right? He doesn't mention rape or murder. Does he have to? No, he doesn't have to. Okay, of course not. We know what sin is, and we know it's various degrees, and um, we know. And then Paul says, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? The phrase, for what have I to do with, is like saying, what business is it of mine? Or what right do I have judging those who are outside? Now, by outside, Paul means those who are not believers. They're not, they're not in the covenant of Christ through faith. They're not in the, the covenant community of Christ. Okay, We as believers, in the context of the fellowship of the church, we have no right to punish, we have no right to discipline unbelievers for not abiding by what Christ has prescribed for his people. And Paul is actually practicing that in his instruction to the Corinthians. How so? He wants the church to discipline this man who is sexually immoral by removing him from the fellowship, okay? But he prescribes no action to be taken against the stepmother. Why? She's not a believer. There's no prescription for her. The church has no authority to judge those who are outside. Boy, the the Inquisition was a complete violation of God's word, right? Coercing people, uh, non-believers, to confess faith. One of the, the horrors of Catholic history. Um, but crazy enough, not only does the church not have the authority to torture and kill the unrepentant in the church, has no business just being involved in any of it. So apparently the popes do not speak infallible decrees as their theology teaches. Okay? It was nothing but satanic. But mind you, Protestants of the past are not off the hook because they mistreated those who differed with them or did not believe. John Calvin uh, sentenced a heretic to death. So before we absolve ourselves of all guilt in our history, um, people, are, people are bad, aren't they? Yeah, I, I get concerned whenever uh, the church is mingled with the state at all. Uh, so in, in church history, uh, it was 400 years uh, as the church began to rise within the Roman Empire that we, we murdered our, our first heretic completely outside of our jurisdiction. Okay? Paul says, do not judge those who are outside. We are responsible for policing our own, and that's, that's all. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So the church should leave the punishment of the unbelieving world to God, okay, as we're careful to maintain purity that's here in the church. Therefore, Paul says, put away from yourselves the evil person. That statement uh, is actually a quote from at least six passages in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And interesting enough, they have execution in mind. Execution. In the Old Testament, Israel was a combination of church and state, which we call a theocracy, and the ultimate authority given to any government is execution. Execution. 
okay? But for the church, which is not the state and not a state within a state, uh, we exercise our ultimate authority not by execution, but by exclusion. Amen? That's the extent of the authority that Christ has given to the church, okay? We've never had the authority to execute someone. It's limited to exclusion. Also notice uh, the way Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to the man who is sexually immoral. He considers him to be an evil person. An evil person. One of the greatest problems in the church today is the same problem that was in the church in Corinth. We fail to recognize sin for what it is. We do. We do not see it in the way that God does. We don't see it in its, its reality. Paul is saying that sexual morality and the other things mentioned, he says, these things are evil. It's, it's moral evil. To have sex with someone that is not your spouse, he says, is evil. It's a violation of God's design and his will. It's the pursuit of selfish pleasure outside of the context from which God says it is holy. And all it does is contaminate and destroy. And no amount of Hollywood or the norms of our culture will ever minimize God's view. Amen? It won't. Sex outside the covenant of marriage, which is the divine context for it, is evil every time. It robs it of its beauty, its purity. It reduces the spiritual nature of it to a mechanical pleasure that is debased and destructive to the soul. It's, it's bad. Okay? So unrepentance in this regard, or any of the other sins, it corrupts. It has to be put out of the church. That's just how Christ's community works. Amen? If you don't want to abide by the rules of Christ's community, then you just can't play here. Neither can I. Amen? It's, it's his church. Okay? We do not coddle the unrepentant at the expense of God's glory, the sanctity of his people. Now, I don't want to end with this dark shadow. The good news is that God's method for dealing with sin in the church, it actually works. You remember when we talked about Peter, was Peter restored? Yeah, after he fumbled in Antioch, he was restored, okay? Also, the sexually immoral man here in 1 Corinthians 5 was restored after the church excluded him. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 2. Listen to what he says. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you. Speaking of 1 Corinthians, and if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know he was in anguish. He says, With many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have Forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Crazy. Okay. So the majority of the church obeyed Paul's instruction. They excluded the man from the fellowship. It proved to be sufficient. He became ashamed of himself, and he was convicted deep in his heart. He repented. He 
got out of the lifestyle that he was in, and then Paul says, all right, it was enough. Okay? And it seems that what they had done is they'd, they'd gone too far. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, it's repentance that we want. That's the condition okay, for being welcomed back into the fellowship, but it's also required that we do. So let's, let's reaffirm our love for him. Let's comfort him. Let's bring him back into the fellowship of the church. That is amazing. What a victory for the people of God when they restore a sinning brother or sister through repentance. Amen? And that really is always the goal. So, as we've talked about this is the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says in Galatians, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And he says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he has deceived himself. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. Next week, we will be back in Matthew. And then, then it's Matthew 19 after 18. And if you've been reading ahead, there's more stuff. Because so. we're full of it. <laughs> Goodness sakes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, Lord. Um, we were at our worst, and you gave us your best. Lord, may we reciprocate the best that we, that we have, the best that we can be by your grace, Lord. And Lord, when one of our brothers or sisters falls into sin, help us to be compassionate and be loving and go to them in a spirit of gentleness with the intent of restoring. And Lord, help those of us that are being confronted by sin to be humble, to be broken, to mourn with our fellow brothers and sisters who mourn for us. Sin is destructive. Lord, help us to be holy, we pray. Grant us grace. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.